Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Prey vs. Predator. Today, we are thrilled to have Dr. Christine Cochiola. Dr. C is a college professor teaching social work in the Connecticut college system. She's been doing that for 20 years, and she's also an adjunct instructor at NYU. Her expertise is in the areas of intimate partner violence, trauma, and child abuse, developing and presenting workshops on these topics, both nationally and internationally. Christine is a founding member and steering committee member of the International Coercive Control Conference and is also a board member of the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Dr. C, you were telling us when, when um, we were meeting prior prior to us pressing record that you have been involved doing this since you were 19 years old. Like, what were you doing at 19? That is wild to me. <laughs> So someone very close to me suffered child abuse and I wanted to become a sexual assault domestic violence counselor. So I went through the training at 19 at the local umbrella agency and actually have been a volunteer there basically um, my entire life. Um, recently, not so much with COVID, but yeah, so... This is part two, and I know last time we we ended off with you were sharing with us this program that you're designing, and it's almost up and running, and uh, it's really to train marriage therapists. Is that right? Can can you just r refresh our memory about that, and and then we want to kind of ask a few questions going from there. Sure. So it'll be a program to train clinicians. So somebody who is a licensed clinical social worker or a licensed marriage and family therapist, a licensed professional counselor, anyone who wants to work in the realm of coercive control, which as we talked about in the previous episode is the foundation of most domestic abuse, right? And I call it abuse because it's not always physical. Um, it can be violent, but not always physically violent. So uh, yeah, so the training would be so that people can could feel like they understand the nuances of this abuse and how it's inflicted on its prey, right? How coercive controllers inflicted on their prey. And this way, they're more readily able in the clinical session to be able to say, discern, wow, this is what's really going on here um, and to be more helpful. And then I can actually refer clients to people because right now there aren't a lot of people who understand this. Um, the way that we need them to. Well, most of the, we were talking about most of uh, clin clinicians and therapists will say it's a dance or it takes two people. Mm -hmm. And that is something we found is not true. I suppose it is if both are healthy and if both are interested in um, being the healthiest partner that they can be. Well, yeah, and I assume that a lot of a lot of the marriage therapists out there who have been doing marriage therapy for years would do very, very well to take this course, whether or not they're interested in it or not, uh, because if they're not interested in it, it's probably out of um, ignorance or, or ju just a lack of awareness of what this is. Um, I know that a, a topic that has come up um, recently in the news um, with the talk of gaslighting and um, course of control, there's this new term, at least new for most uh, people, is DARVOS. Mm -hmm. And I know that you're really one of the people who works with that term. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Explain it to us and, and share with us more about it? Sure, sure. So I'm going to 
take one step back because yeah. I think it's important to mention that, you know, the basis of my clinical practice and the research study I did was about this topic of subjugation. Mm. And Dr. Jeffrey Young and Janet Glasgow um, have a subjugation questionnaire. And in it, there's 10 questions. And it really is about people losing their autonomy in a relationship. So what I would say with clinicians is that, you know, when there are two people who come in and their marriage or their partnership seems unhealthy, like they seem unhappy, they're unhappy. If one person is presenting with more anxiety, seems to be more emotional, I'm guessing that very often that is a manifestation of the trauma of being engaged in a relationship where one person has power over them and they don't even know it. So, you know, in my dream <laughs> that clinicians would use this questionnaire when they have couples come in and really get a, 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 get a determination about what level of subjugation a person has when they come into a clinical setting. Because I think that that, that's, you know, we go to the, um, we go to the OBGYN now and they do a risk assessment on domestic violence. It's by the way, on physical violence. It's not on this insidious coercive control that most often is non-physical, at least to start. Coercive control is the basis of most homicides. I mean, that's what we know. Fem femicide and filicide is based on one person having power over the other person. Mm -hmm. So, so we have these assessments in certain medical, you know, when we go to certain medical appointments, at least here in the United States. So the question becomes, why don't we have something like that in the clinical setting? Right. And that would be so important. So related to DARVO is that if you have a client who comes in and they're anxious and stressed and they don't know what's wrong with the relationship and they wish they could figure it out. And I don't know why he's always mad at me. Or I don't know what I did wrong yesterday, but I really made him upset. And whatever that is, that's abuse, by the way, but whatever that comes out as, maybe it comes out as anger, by the way, just like we were talking in a prior episode, you know, people react to their own feelings of frustration through, you know, fight, flight, freeze, or fawn, right? So maybe they're really angry in your office and you're like, whoa, that's a lot of anger. <laughs> Where's that anger coming from? Yeah. You know, and so we really have to figure that out because unfortunately, perpetrators are known to very often use DARVO. And that's D A R V O, deny, attack, and reverse mm -hmm. victim and offender. Mm -hmm. Jennifer Freyd came up with this concept of DARVO in 1997. And really, it, it, it grew out of this idea of researching children who had been abused in their, in their family system. And when they would disclose sexual abuse, what do perpetrators do all of the time? They deny, they attack, they reverse. They say, oh, sh that child came on to me or I, I, I didn't want that, right? And this is what we do very often as I'm sure you guys can fit this into like sexual assaults, right? Deny, attack, reverse, victim and offender. What was she wearing? Why was she in that street, right? So as an aside, women are more at risk in their own home than they are in an alley. We know that. So, so in any case, these abusers use these strategies to shut the 
to shut the noise down, to shut down the the disclosure. And so children, what do children do when, when an adult in their life says, that's not true? Why are you lying? Well, they don't, they just, they don't disclose anymore, right? So, so that relates to Jennifer Freyd, um, her work on betrayal trauma, because there is no greater betrayal than betrayal by someone that you love and adore. Can you define what that is, betrayal trauma? Yeah, so it's a trauma that is um, that occurs in relationship to the relationship you have with the perpetrator. So it's it it is basically that it's this idea that I am betrayed by someone that I loved, that I adore, that I is my protector, is supposed to take care of me. So as you can imagine, all children who suffer any kind of abuse in their home are dealing with betrayal trauma. All victims, of course, of control as adults are suffering betrayal trauma. All children in the home of a coercive controller are suffering betrayal trauma. What child wants to believe that their parent is a predator? What adult wants to believe that? I mean, if we as adults don't want to believe that he's a predator, then of course, children, right? Yeah. Well, I can't even imagine, like, even when you say that, because my predator is a parent, um, thinking like using the word betrayal, I automatically go to a marriage or a situation, a boyfriend, girlfriend, or whatever, like a relationship that way as adults. But I don't necessarily think, and it is a betrayal as a child, because you are, you are completely vulnerable to this person and you are not, you are expected to be loved and taken care of. And then this person doesn't always do that or doesn't take in your account, your emotional needs or, or aren't safe. And it doesn't even mean that they're throwing you around or spanking you too hard or sexually assaulting you. It could just be the words that they use with you or their love is conditional or. You just hit the nail on the head, right? So children, the one thing that children need to grow up healthy and strong. And of course, there's children who are resilient, who don't get this and they're fine. But what we know for most children is they need to grow up with unconditional positive regard and love from one primary caretaker. And when you are betrayed by the very people who are supposed to give that to you, that is, my heart is sad right now for you because that is the worst betrayal. And um, it's interesting to me that you never thought of, framed it that way, Like, when, but it really is framing it that way it really has to be because there's nothing greater, no greater harm that a parent is, could do or a caretaker. Is I don't know if we're just jumping a bit, but is there hope for somebody who's an adult who is raised by a single parent who was a predator? That was my story. So it's like I didn't even have another parent to have the unconditional regard, but I did have friends and you know, a chosen family. So you would hope, but as for if any of our listeners are adults now looking back at their childhood going, Hmm, I never had that. It's a great question. And I would say, and what if you're a protective mom listening right now or a protective dad and you have children who are dealing with this coercive controller who may in fact be physically sexually harming them or just psych just that does not mean just, right? Mm -hmm. Psychologically harming them, right? So yes, there is hope 
that's the really great, I mean, there is there, first of all, so um, there's a really great Harvard study talks about people were born either more ego compromised or ego resilient and ego. I'm I'm talking about like that part of our persona, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so, and there's, you know, the fulcrum in the center of a seesaw, right? So we're either born more ego resilient, more ego compromised. And depending on the family system that we're born into, that is either going to get worse or get better. Right. And then you add in protective parts. That's what I call it in my programming. I Every child who is living in a home system where they had an experience, maybe like you did, or they had an, they are living between a course of controller and mom's house. They're going back and forth, back and forth. They need, I, I've, I've said this before, the abuser, the course of controller is working double time to harm to Mm -hmm. fracture the relationship with the protective parent. They are trying to create ego-compromised children. They don't want their children to have agency. They want to diminish their children over and over again. That is their goal in life. If they have children who are ego-resilient, then that child's going to have agency and have a voice. And they might not need them anymore. Or leave them or punish them or whatever, right? So there's so many ramifications of that. So they want ego-compromised children. So what do protective parents or caretakers have to do triple time? They have to create an environment where this child has the ability to have more ego resiliency. Mm. That comes from safety. That comes, no, that is the safe parent, but the kids don't know that. They're being told otherwise. They're saying you're unsafe at your mother's house. She's crazy. She's all of these things. So, and they need protective parts. And those protective parts are grandma, the neighbor next door who's really sweet, who they can walk the dog for. It can be anyone that we trust, of course, right? That we know would never abuse our child because you have to, you know, this podcast, right, is about predators. I mean, predators seek out children to harm all day long. That's what they do full time. So so we have to be really cautious. But the point is you have these protective people around you. And that in and of itself is what we have to work triple time. It's like bubble wrap around our children to give them every opportunity when they are away from that abuser to grow in ego resiliency. That's our full-time job. That's when they're triggering us, we act. We do not, re- we do not react, we respond. I, I, I tell protective moms, write down three ways that your child triggers you because your child triggers you. So write down three ways they trigger you. What are three things they say, whether it's they don't clean up their room, whether they call you mom, mom, dad's you're cheating on him, whatever it is that they say, what are the, come up with three responses, practice them in the clinical world. You know this, right? In the clinical world, we look at the empty chair, have a conversation in the empty chair, pretend the empty chair is your child and respond and practice it over and over and over. If you were on stage, you would practice your lines. Practice your lines, practice your tone. We have to lend these children calm over and over again. Now, how do you trigger your child? Come up with three ways you trigger, because guess what? You trigger your child. Interesting. How do you do that? Because 
if you sit and you think about it, you could be like, oh, wait a minute. When I tell her her shirt looks nice, she's triggered. Why? Well, she's a teenager. Well, maybe because dad says mom thinks that mom doesn't dress nice. So if you say the shirt looks nice, then maybe she thinks that you're saying it's like your it's your style and dad says your style is awful. So the the course of controller, right? So don't say her shirt's nice. Say something else. It would take a tremendous amount of awareness and and focus um uh, and i love what you're saying practice i think so many times we feel like if we have to practice it's phony mm-hmm. and yet i think that's the that's going to be the only way to create the this idea of safety is really knowing what does it look like and how how do how can i practice being that so not everyone likes this, but I feel like it works. We are on stage. We fake it till we make it. Yeah. That's what we do. And what we know about the brain. So physiologically, what we know neurologically with the brain and our somatic responses is that if we actually begin acting the part, we begin to feel the part. Yeah. It's true. And even uh, like I think of myself, like I have a performance background. So I know there's times where I've gone into rooms that have been really like uh, people, uh, important people are there. And I feel inside like I'm losing my mind. I'm so whatever. But outside, you just remain a sense of calm. No one would know that that's what's going on inside of me. And so even when I work with children who are having moments, I just remain calm. And I'm like, it is one of those things that you do fake it till you make it. And people don't know what's going on inside of you. Right. And the more you practice that, yeah. the more it will come more readily. And the next time they throw that arrow at you, your children are throwing arrows. They're trying to see what sticks. The reason why they're doing that is because they're petrified. They are petrified that you're going to leave them petrified that they can't lean on you. So they have to keep testing you. And until every single arrow they send your way falls off, they are not going to believe that you are strong. They think you're weak. You, They saw you with that relationship, mm-hmm. right? Well, and I am, it, when you're in a state of trauma and then one of your kids triggers you, and then you become traumatized again, or it, you, the the trauma comes up, all those emotions come up. If you don't have something practiced, if you don't know how you're going to be, you're just in a state of trauma and you're in trouble because that is what's going to be exposed to them. And it's going to confirm what the predator is saying. Mm-hmm. And so I, I love the work that you're doing here. I, I think it's really, really um, the only way forward for for people who are triggered because triggered people can't respond with their prefrontal cortex. Right. So if you've been practicing, you can at least respond through habit as opposed to Mm. uh, your brain in that moment. Absolutely. And I think it's important to point out that when children are living under the regime of a course of controller, an abuser, in any of those situations, they are not their chronological age. Mm. Their brains... Yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, so their brains have been broken, frankly. I, I have heard that. that. That trauma has has literally, if you had a broken leg, if your child had a broken leg, let's just say, 
you would not expect them to do all the same things that they would normally do. Well, we can't see a broken brain, but if somebody has sexually, physically, psychologically maltreated us in some way, our brain is broken. So how do we take care of that? We take care of it differently. We have to be different than we would normally be. Right. We have to be. So if you, if this is how I try to propose it to protective moms is that if you could look at your child instead of through the lens of they're being defined, they're difficult, or they're always crying, or they're always anxious. What if you looked through the lens of like, they literally have a broken brain. Like they're not 12. They're actually more like an eight-year-old or more like a five-year-old when they're with me. Because they don't know how to regulate because as you were saying, PJ, they're in that um, that reptilian part of the brain. They're not able to cognitively process. What's the one thing that leads people to be able to cognitively process? Human connection. Mm. Yeah. So by being that protective parent present, not reactive, lending calm, we actually help them get regulated. And when they're regulated, they're not triggering us as much. So you see it all is in symmetry. Helps us regulate ourselves at the same time. And then then give your time, give you time to come back online, give your brain time and your body to physiologically be able to calm down. You know what to do. You know what you're going to do. You have a focus. Um, I don't know that we've expressly said that this that what we're talking about right now is from your program. So so uh, we kind of launched into that. But tell us a little bit the name of your program, how how parents can reach out to you and connect with you. Tell us a bit about that. Sure, it's the Protective Parenting Program, and they can find it on my website, which is iknowyourheart.com. Um, and they could click in, and I'll be launching another one at the end of the month. But I mean. You know, I, I appreciate you highlighting the program, but I, I these are like skills that all of our protective parents just really, our children need us. Yeah. And they need us to be using ourselves intentionally. Every single moment they are with us, it's not just, oh, they're home from their visit. It's, oh, they're home or they're coming home in 15 minutes, how am I going to prepare myself and be literally ready? Wow. Now, does that mean like, so this is the other thing is, you know, that whole dysregulation that we all have, you know, we, we, no matter how healthy we are, we have it. What is wrong with showing our child that, you know what, mommy needs, I just need to go take 10 minutes right now. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm really upset. I'm not upset at you, but I'm really upset. And I want to just take, we actually role model for them how to deal with their own dysregulation. And the problem is, I think that we all just get so busy in our lives that we forget that every single moment that they're with us is precious. And we have to be trauma-informed parents. And that's what my program is about. It's about creating literally a sea of trauma-informed parents so that these children come home and they actually can feel safe. And that's the only way they will have agency in their life. And and that's the only way to prevent them from either behaving more like the abuser or fawning and getting engaged in relationships that are unhealthy when they, you know, grow up. I mean, there's just so many ways that it creates a prevent protective parts. 
So I have a question. I had heard that if you have a child and they experienced a great trauma or a brain break, say at the age of 12, we'll say, from then on, when they are triggered, do they revert back to that 12-year-old brain? I mean, I, I think it's child dependent, right? There's some yeah. children again. So if we kind of go back to that ego resilient, ego yeah. compromised kind of analogy, right? If they are more of an ego resilient child, is it possible that they're able to heal from that with the right supports much more quickly and they adapt better, right? And I caution parents because sometimes they think their children are adapting, but they're really avoidant. So let's just be really clear about that. But so I think it's child dependent. I mean, you know, um, Amber shared a little bit of, of her story and obviously you're resilient, you know, and so you probably were born with maybe more ego resiliency. And so it's really child dependent, but why not? in that circumstance, you know, give them every single thing that they need to enhance that ego resiliency, can right? You, can you yeah. define what ego resiliency is for people or ego compromised is for people? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's, if you think about having an inability to have autonomy in your life, like having an inability to, um, I guess, feel a sense of, of personal strength. And really that's like a person, when I say personal power, I mean it in a good way, right? Like mm. the ability to have self-worth, like to feel like you're valued and that you're valuable in this world, right? That would be like someone who's ego resilient versus someone who's ego compromised may already start off life feeling less than, may have some um, some inability to have agency in their life. And then if they grow up in a home that doesn't foster that, then that's a recipe for really difficult circumstances. When we were all chatting prior to us hitting record, you mentioned child psychological maltreatment. And I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about that. Sure. So I veer away from the terms emotional abuse and use psychological abuse or psychological maltreatment. And the reason is, is because, um, so psychological maltreatment, first of all, encompasses acts of omission and acts of commission. And so when we think about the way that Child Protective Services looks at abuse and neglect, they look at abuse as an act of commission, meaning someone intended it, and they look at neglect as an act of omission. There's not a lot of discussion about the psychological maltreatment in there, okay? And that could be intentional, like I'm going to call you a stupid kid, right? Or it can be unintentional, it could be insidious. And when I, when I, and unintentional is a tricky word. That's what they use. I don't agree. I mean, to say that somebody didn't mean to do it, but they're being insidious about it, it seems to me that they meant to do it. So, um, but, and what we know about psychological abuse is that, because it is hidden, it is it causes much greater complex trauma because it's not something visual that people can see. So, right? We hear that from victims all the time. If he had just hit me, right? Yes. Just right. Mm -hmm. So so the reason why I call it psychological is because psychological encompasses the shifts in the brain. So we we have brain scans now. We know the brain changes with trauma. So 
Psychological is how my brain, my physiological, my neurological, all of those aspects of my body are impacted. My brain is impacted, but it also is how I feel. It's also my emotions. So that's why I use that. I feel like emotional abuse covers I'm sad and I'm he's calling me names and it hurts my feelings and those are all really valid. But guess what? Beyond that, your brain is changing. You're suffering trauma, which is why I like to use psychological. And some mm-hmm. of the research shows that. Not everybody. Some people use emotional. Well, and and it changes physiologically, right? Your 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 entire nerve central nervous system lights up like like it becomes on fire with toxic chemicals, adrenaline, cortisol. Absolutely. Um, and I think brain damage results uh, through through enough time and through enough years. Uh, we've got we've got um, an author. I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, Gabor Mate. Um, Okay, so so he's uh, one of our local heroes. Uh, certainly, yes, cer- certainly for us here at at um, at PVP, he's got a new book called "The Myth of Normal." It's so interesting when I'm hearing you speak about almost the the level and depth of expertise that these protective parents need in order to facilitate healthy growth of their children. And yet this kind of myth of normal, because our social networks, our judges, our, our lawyers, our counselors, social workers, they're, they're doing the, the opposite of what you're suggesting in terms of they're, they're telling parents, you know, don't talk this way to your kids. Don't tell them the truth. Don't label toxic behaviors or predatory behaviors. Um, that would be bad, you know, 50-50 split of parenting. There's all this kind of, n- the normal is actually foundationally unhealthy in this type of situation. And so getting people to recognize that even what what's normal is not what's healthy for these parents. Um, I'm imagining you're going to bump up against a lot of resistance to your ideas and your and, and you, you you know you have this sense that you know you're right and you you know you're going in a direction of healing and growth have you found that you were bumping up against normal you're you're bumping up against the constructs that are out there right now so so kind of what's normal in our system like never talk badly about the other parent um you know 50-50 parenting some of those things that we would say are normal are you finding that you're getting pushback or resistance? You're a frontline worker, so to speak, on this, and and you're sort of opening up a new era, really, of understanding and of growth. I, I think about, you know, the people in the civil rights movement or the early feminists, or uh, usually when you do this type of work, there's pushback. I guess maybe because I'm only really in the course of control world. So in all, everyone in the course of control world and domestic violence world, I mean, for the most part, everyone understands that like, this isn't normal, Like That's the problem, right? The problem is, is that people are like, this is what you should do in these situations. Well, yeah. In a healthy situation, you know, you, right. shouldn't, talk, you shouldn't talk about your ex, right? Like you probably be great if you went out for pizza with your ex, but this is not this is this is definitely not normal. So, and I love Gabor, and um, I love all that he does. And I think that what's interesting is uh, he brings up, and I know that a lot of experts talk about this. But the really good news is, is that with all of these supports that 
I'm talking about and that other experts talk about is that the brain can heal. Mm-hmm. Children can heal. Adults can heal. We can, there's neuroplasticity. We see the brain heal. So, so it behooves us to do whatever we can. And, and to be clear, I just want to be clear. I am, and I'm not suggesting you're saying this, but I'm not suggesting we say something bad about the predator. I'm suggesting that we say the truth. Mm-hmm. Truth doesn't have to be that he's a jerk. The truth can just be, I'm sorry that happened. People shouldn't treat each other like that. Like, do you see, I'm not saying him. I'm just using it as a framework for a lesson. And so, and children aren't hearing that. Right. You know, the father, their father, um, you know, shows up two hours late for a visit and the mother's not supposed to say anything. No, the mother can say, "Mm, I'm really sorry. We've waited a long time, haven't we? That's all. All she's done is acknowledged they've waited. And that yeah. that hurts. Yeah. So I, I have a follow-up question. We have a listener who was raised by a predator. And because they were, um, they've learned predatory behaviors because that was their normal. Now they're an adult. They have kids. They're worried that even though they're doing they're doing their work, they are passing those unhealthy behaviors on to their kids. So I guess my question is, can a person unlearn predatory behaviors that they were raised with? Well, I mean, I think that that's that's dependent on individuals. I think there's some people who, depending on where they are in the spectrum, there's some people who will never, ever change. Hmm. I mean, if this person is, is saying they want to change, that's a start, right? I mean... So, and it kind of goes back, that is a worry that a lot of my moms that I work with have is that their children will end up being like the abuser, right? Mm -hmm. And so how do we prevent that? By by parenting differently, by parenting in a trauma-informed way where we're just elevating over and over again the safety and the well-being of that child. Um, So, you know, that particular parent, maybe. you know maybe maybe there's hope maybe there's hope so i i what i have understood by listening to other podcasts and you discussing the legal system in regards to coercive control and how there's a few states that actually look at it or recognize it i don't know if the canadian system does recognize it i know the uk system does and is there a way to I don't know how we change it. Like, it just feels like such a, a, a big, steep hill to make the world recognize that this is part of abuse and separation and divorce proceedings and the legal system. What would you suggest? Like, how do we climb this hill, this battle? Where do we, where this, do we start? Where do we start? Yeah, so um, there's five states in the United States that have codified coercive control as a form of domestic violence. And so... Really, what we're talking about is that someone doesn't have to be physically harmed mm-hmm. in order to say that they've been a domestic violence victim. Um, and I believe in Canada, it's um, 
Kieras law that just passed um, in oh, one I've of your of provinces. And that is for judges and lawyers, I believe, to be trained. And so we're really excited in the United States about that. Um, and now that's what we're trying to do in the United States is VAWA, the Violence Against Women Act, was just um, recently um recertified to start again with Caden's law, which Caden's law is an aspect of the law that would ensure that um, before children are given, before before anyone is given custody, that there is clarity about the, the well-being and safety of those children with whomever that would be. So, and that would also be um, training judges and lawyers. Um, I have to say the judicial system is pushing back on getting any training on coercive control, on any training on child safety. Um, you probably have it there in Canada, but the family court system is literally just a very slow moving decrepit machine <laughs> that does not really only wants to get through the court case doesn't necessarily and then we have lawyers who want to keep a court case going for obvious reasons. So there's it's just really not set up in a way that is useful or protective in the UK and Scotland. Um, I think it's. I want to say there's, it might be Taiwan. Um, there are other countries that have codified, criminalized coercive control. And that is what France is trying to do right now is criminalize it. That's different than codifying it as a form of domestic violence. So, um, so yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of work that has to be done when you ask what could be done. I don't know what your, um, Policy is in Canada. I know in the United States, we still have not ratified the ERA. So the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, includes people of color, people who are disabled, but does not include women, um, men, people of color, and the disabled. So we are not even part of the Constitution, which is just quite alarming. What? <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of work to be done about raising. Yeah. I, think, I think talking about the gender parity, like really discussing this idea that this is a gender oppression, whether it's happening to a man or a woman. It is about patriarchal norms that support people having positions of power over others. We see it in systems. You've seen it in governmental systems. You know, we've seen it in policy. We see it in, in, in family court. We see it in schools. We see it in churches. I mean, think about all of the... Um, you know, the horrifying sexual abuse of children for how many years? That is that coercive control. Yes, that's psychological abuse, that's coercion, right? And then then when people came out, there was the Darvo that occurred. The, you know, so yeah, I could go on. <laughs> Obviously, no, I don't it, need to anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, it's just it's it's one of those things it's anybody who's listening, if they're gonna go into the legal system, I just think it's going up a steep hill and we're going to have to change things from the inside before that, that can happen and work within the system we have, I guess. Yeah. And I think, I think what you bring up is this important part. I, I was looking for the name of the law in Canada, but what we, this idea that these are crimes against humanity, these predators are harming people so significantly and children. So for me, I mean, how could we allow children to be treated in such a horrifying way and not even recognize that it's psychological maltreatment in the CPS system, the child protective system? We don't even recognize it. Mm -hmm. We put children with abusers all the time. 
This is a perfect transition too. I think part of your training incorporates with lawyers or legal system. I don't know if we touched on that, but yeah, you developed a webinar for lawyers. Talk about that a bit. Yeah. So at the end of the month, I'll be um, launching um, a webinar for lawyers that they can get trained on what coercive control is and understand these aspects, including DARVO. A lot of times these offenders um, will, as soon as a, a mother says that she is a victim of abuse or that her child has been abused, um, it's about 83% of the time moms will lose custody because he will claim parental alienation. So parental alienation is really a theory that was created by a man who um, supported um, a, um, sex with children. And um, so we really have to come up with different terminology. I think it's coercive control of children is really what is going on. And um, these offenders will use that in the legal system. So we're hoping to, I'm, I'm hoping that more lawyers will want to engage in in trainings around this. And I also have a where is your line training, which is a healthy relationship training for young people so that they can see what the signs are of um, unhealthy relationships and just take a webinar. Say that again. Where is your line? Where is your line? Yeah. Cause where is it? <laughs> you, you are a busy woman. Yeah. Wow. I, I, uh, I hope that you are uh, able to get some uh, self-care and in between your uh, busy schedule. I want to thank you so much so for good. taking your time to spend with us and our audience and our listeners. We need these voices and we need um, more things than to happen that will support something that for most people is just completely a new language and don't know it's out there. Uh, I think of movements, civil rights movement, feminism, Me Too movement. They all had leaders and, and people in the front lines. And you're one of those people, I, I think. And uh, you took your time today to, uh -huh. again, uh, to support um, developing that language and, and supporting the victims. So thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. I am definitely not alone. There are a lot of people doing this and you guys are doing amazing to to ensure that people continue to become educated about it, right? I mean, that's really what we have to do to prevent it from further harming people. So, Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. C. And please check her out online. Always. I know your heart.com. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Let's get these classes going. Perfect. Thanks, Dr. Thank Kojiela. you so much. Real quick, we're also doing a draw where one of our listeners who leaves a rating and review will be entered to win a Visa gift card and a book about navigating this type of abuse. So anyone who leaves a rating and review, remember to do both or it won't count, anytime before March 31st, will be entered to win a $50 gift card and will receive a book from our preferred reading list. So head on over now before you forget.